The longest night of our lives, of Jana and I's life, came at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. Most of you have heard about our daughter's congenital heart defects, her three surgeries that she had before she was one month of age. Despite all of the efforts of the incredible people who worked on Jessica, three months later, after those surgeries, our baby was dying. We were begging God for life uh, day after day as things slipped further and further away. One evening, she coded again. That, that means that her heart and lungs stopped for the, I don't know, 20th time that it happened. After resuscitation, something really interesting happened, something really horrible. We found that we could not keep her lungs operating on the child respirator. This is a child who was born at a healthy weight, but it dropped down to less than four pounds. And so they had to bring in an adult respirator. They didn't have oscillating respirators then. And uh, they brought in an adult one. And even on the adult respirator, she wasn't responding. She did, however, respond when we bagged her. Uh, that, that's where you oscillate by hand uh, very quickly, bagging the, uh, pressing the bag to force air into the lungs. Um, and, uh, and she responded to that. Not, it wasn't great, but she stayed alive, and, and her oxygen saturations would stay up at about 80% of what they ought to be if we bagged her. So about 6 o'clock that night, we started bagging. And we took turns, Jana and I and the nurses, uh, one after another. It was exhausting. You, you bagged for about five minutes, and then your hand was absolutely aching, and you would switch and use the other hand, and you go back and forth, and after about every 30 minutes, somebody else would take over, and you'd go collapse. And this went on from 6 until 11. And at 11 o'clock, a guy arrived from respiratory therapy, a guy we'd never seen before. We knew all the RTs in the hospital, we thought. And he arrived, and he said, Hello, I am on hell. And I am here to take care of this. You take a break. I got this. And on Hale walked over and he took the bag and he just started bagging and he just hummed. <laughs> and he was humming hymns, uh, just singing to the Lord and switching hands. And all of us just, I mean, we just collapsed. We were absolutely exhausted. We were only, we were only not crying because we were out of tears. And we just watched on Hale all night long. On Hale just bagged. Every now and then we'd get up and we'd say, dude, you got to be tired here. Do you want to break? No, no. You rest. I got these. I got these. And he would just keep doing it all night long without a break. He never went to the restroom. He never asked for help. He wouldn't accept help. He just kept doing it until 4 in the morning. And at about 4 a.m., the baby coughed, and then she, out of nowhere, began to breathe easily. Without the bag, just on the respirator. And her oxygen saturations went up to about 95%. That, that was the night everything turned. Everything turned that night. Jessica got steadily better from that moment forward. Three weeks later, we were home. We'd never seen that therapist on hell before. We never saw him again. I know what you're thinking. You are wondering in your, in your uh, Hispanic um, uh, Latino respiratory therapist voice, Pastor Wayne. Was that mine an angel? It's a great question. The answer is, I don't know. It, I don't know if on hell was an angel. It is certainly biblically possible. Here's what I do know. On that longest night of my life, on that painful, amazing night, I felt a deeper understanding of passages like Daniel chapter 10 than I had ever felt before. And with that understanding, I'd like you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 10. You find Daniel right after Ezekiel in your Old Testament, just before Hosea. Go to Daniel 10, let's read 1 through 3. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, 
a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. That's the pagan name he was given as a child when he was kidnapped from Babylon and, and forcibly relocated as a captive, uh, kidnapped from Jerusalem and forcibly relocated to Babylon. The message was true and about a great conflict. He, Daniel, understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth. I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. Stop there. As we headline in our notes, Daniel introduces a situation here. Uh, look up here at the slide, if you would. Verse 1 is an overview. Verse 1 is an overview of what's coming in chapter 11. Chapter 11 details a great war that is coming. When we get to chapter 11, you're going to see why Daniel was so sickened by this revelation. A couple other things to point out. Third year of King Cyrus. Oh, that means we're in the third year of the Persian Empire. That means this is after the great edict that Cyrus issued that allowed the Jews to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. A very aged Daniel is burdened. He keeps praying. He's mourning because of this great conflict that is to come. Again, that's for next time. Poor Daniel feels no peace. Look at him. He doesn't eat yummy foods. He, do he doesn't even care for his skin with olive oil, which was a must in that time and place. And it's at that moment when Daniel is exhausted and, and he is so torn up by this whole emotional and spiritual battle, it's right then when, Anhel arri I mean, when the angel arrives. Go to verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up. And there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from a faz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like, like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. And he said this to me. I stood trembling. The appearance of this messenger of God is, to put it mildly, bright. He glows with the glory of God's presence from which he has been dispatched to encourage Daniel. And this brings up some important points about angels. Um, let, let's go over a couple of things we need to know biblically about angels. Angels are God's created messengers. They are not eternal. They were created at some point in eternity past. Math people, don't write me and say, there's no such thing as past in eternity. I get the point. You understand what I'm saying. All right. Um, by the way, angel, the word is angel just means messenger. So these are God's created messengers. Uh, they're not human, although sometimes they appear in manly form, as we saw here. This is just a little pet peeve of mine. They are never, ever described in the Bible as having wings. Never. Ever. Seraphim, yes. Cherubim, other forms, yes. Angels, no. Okay, sorry, I'll get off that. All right. They encourage people, but this is important. They will not accept human worship. Angels can be drawn into and are sent out from God's great counsel in heaven. And angels are neither omnipotent nor omniscient. They, they don't, they're not all powerful. They don't know everything, but they are very powerful. And, of course, all this makes an angel incredibly forbidding to human senses, which helps explain the bystander's reaction. Their panic is understandable. It's not very helpful, but it's understandable. You ever, you ever felt that kind of panic? You ever, you ever been spooked by something unseen? 
it's much scarier than things you see, right? You're, you're walking through a dark house, and suddenly your hair's standing on end, back of your neck, and you just something you can't see anything, but there's something wrong. It's really scary. If that goes on long enough, what do you do? You flee. You run hide under cover somewhere, because we all know covers, monsters can't penetrate cover, so you go hide under some blankets, right? That's what happened to these men with Daniel. Apparently, it's daytime. They're at a busy river port, and yet, scared, these guys just abandoned the old man. They, this is an old man. This is not only an old man. This is the vizier who is the second most powerful human being in Babylon, and like Sir Robin, they run away and desert him, right? Very brave. And Daniel's response is likewise understandable. Poor guy. It was bad enough. He's burdened with this picture he was given of a future war. Now he's blinded by a present angel. He's all alone, no strength, pale, powerless, so he faints. Now, that needs to be put into perspective. Back up, think about this. Daniel is a man who has seen and been a part of miracles. He is very close to his Lord. Daniel knows that he is going to be resurrected in the age to come. Daniel is somebody who is accustomed to great power and authority, which he has always wielded graciously. And yet, amazing as he is, experienced though he is, Daniel is utterly starstruck by this angel, which brings up, this brings up a serious concern I have for some of us. You know, many of us here have been walking with God for a long time, like, like Daniel. There are many people here who wield great power and authority. All of us Christians know that we are sealed in heaven. We will be resurrected in Jesus. We may even have seen miracles. But here's what happens. There is... Unlike Daniel, who reacted, we can, we can become jaundiced to spiritual things. There's a cynicism that can creep in, a, a boredom with spiritual things. Here's what, here's what I was thinking about as I went through this passage. I thought, I wonder, if this angel appeared to us, whether we would even notice or if we'd just be too busy on our phones. I don't, I don't know. And you know what's the saddest part? The saddest part is we'd miss the whole... Look at this message. You are a man treasured by God. That's the best part of all. We miss the idea that, that those who are God's are treasured by Him. All God's people said, amen. All right, so let's put down our phones, except for the Bible app, and let's read the next section. Verse 12. Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me, for from the first day that you purpose to understand and to humble yourself before God, your prayers were heard. I've come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision refers to those days. All right, here the curtain is partly pulled back in two ways. First, a divine perspective is, is shown to us humans about prayer. Human prayers matter. Now, they're not causal. God is sovereign. We are not. But somehow, the sovereign Lord uses human prayer to effect change. I mean, this angel says he's come because of Daniel's prayer. Wow! There's, there's a great summary statement about this in James. Read with me. James chapter 5, verse 16, all together. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Your prayers are heard. Isn't that encouraging? From the moment Daniel started praying, God had heard immediately. And the whole 21 days that Daniel's been praying about this, God was completely engaged with every thought. But sometimes there is um, static on our end of the line. Sometimes, at least from a human perspective, requests and answers can, can be delayed. The conversation with God can be interrupted. 
Now, that delay can be our fault. For example, here's one of the most chilling warnings you will ever hear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Married man, if that doesn't motivate you, you are a world-class fool. Yes, men and women are different. They're different in strengths, they're different in roles, but they are complete equals. And marriage exists as an equal partnership. When I don't honor my wife and treat her as an equal partner, a co-heir of the grace of life, my conversation with God gets interrupted. Yikes. That, that's serious. Now, there are other times that the static in our perception of prayer is because of unseen spiritual forces. It, it has nothing to do with people. Demonic forces can interrupt the conversation with God. That's the case in verses 13 and 14, which we'll expand upon in a moment. The bottom line is people's prayers really do matter. But sometimes, from a human perspective, the, the conversation is delayed. I know that elicits the brilliant question that you're asking in your, uh, in your ridiculous imitation of a demon. Why does God allow this? Um, although, actually, demons probably would say, why does God allow this? Yeah, yeah, um, great question. Thank you for asking. Gleason Archer gives an excellent answer. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Uh, Dr. Archer says this. While God can, of course, override the united resistance of all the forces of hell if he chooses to do so, he accords to demons some limited powers of obstruction and rebellion somewhat like those he allows humans. In both cases, the exercise of free will in opposition to the Lord of heaven is permitted by him when he sees fit. Close quote. All right, now, let's talk more about those spiritual battles. Daniel 10 pulls back the curtain on prayer. It also helps us learn about demonic warfare. Um, that's the headline atop the right side of your notes. The curtain is pulled back on demonic warfare. Again, I ache for Daniel here. He is upset terribly by news of this war to come described in chapter 11. Like some of you, Daniel has seen warfare. L like you, he knows the horror of it. And now he's shown another mighty, terrifying, invisible war that has been going on for days just outside of his dimensional time-space understanding. No wonder he gets wobbly again. Daniel's told that this prince of Persia has interfered with God's messenger. Now, this prince of Persia either has to be a video game or a demon. Since video games weren't yet invented, I think Daniel must be referring to some kind of demon. Okay, to understand that, we've got to first go back. Let's go back and amend our list. Let's add to our list of angelic traits. Remember what we know about angels from the Bible. They're God's created messengers. They're not human, although they can appear in manly form. They're not human. It's not human beings who were really good, and then, ding, ding, they get their, ah, that's not it. Okay. Um, they can be drawn into and are sent out from, from God's counsel. They are powerful, neither omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent, but they are powerful. They encourage people, but they do not, they will not accept human worship. And then what we need to know here, they're arranged in ranks. Ephesians talks a great deal about this. They're arranged in, in, in ranks and order. So, for example, here's two of the ones that we're told about in the Bible. Gabriel is particularly tasked with announcements about the Messiah. When Gabriel appeared to Daniel in chapter 9, when he appears in, in the Gospels, he's talking about the Messiah, the future of the Messiah. Michael, who's mentioned in this text, Michael has authority specifically over the nation of Israel. Okay, you got those last three? All right, here's what happens. Satan, the great counterfeiter, He's taken the angels who followed him in rebellion, and he has arranged them similarly. So, so the prince of Persia, this is some demon who's associated with that kingdom in imitation of Michael's association with Israel. 
Dr. Pentecost summarizes really well. Look what Dr. P said. In imitation, Satan has also apparently assigned high-ranking demons to positions of authority over each kingdom. The prince of the Persian kingdom was a satanic representative assigned to Persia. To seek to prevent God's message from getting to Daniel, this demonic prince attacked the angel as he embarked on his mission. Close quote. But after three weeks of warfare, Michael the archangel appears. While he handles Persia, this other angel gets into time space to Daniel, appearing on the Tigris on the 24th day of the first month on the docks. Okay. Now, with that in mind, we have enough data to put together a partial list of what God teaches us about demons in the Bible. Okay, so look at what demons are. Demons are angels, but they chose to rebel against Yahweh. They're fallen angels. They will be damned eternally. However, some, not all, some now have room under God's sovereign plan to, to trouble time-space as well as beyond time-space. They know the truth about the triune God and they hate it. They desire to be worshipped. Remember, angels won't accept you. Demons always desire worship. They are arranged in ranks, and they attack and influence God's people and the angels who serve God's people. All right, now, this demonic, angelic warfare is real. It is continually going on beyond our comprehension in time space. But here's the problem. Whenever Christians see this revealed in Scripture, it tends to mess up their thinking pretty badly. There are two equally heretical perspectives that dominate. They dominate the modern conversation about demonic warfare. School, uh, school number one is the, oh, it's not really serious school. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not really a big deal. The second school is the, oh, my goodness, that's so fascinating. We need to get into that, and we can control it. Okay, so, so this, this latter you often see among our wonderful charismatic brethren, right? They, they, um, they will do things like name all the demons and then, and then pretend that if we know those names, then we can control them. That is not only unscriptural, that is very dangerous. The, the it's not serious school tends to be modern materialistic in the thinking and, well, you know, that, that's kind of super simple, a little embarrassed that's in the Bible. And that, was, that happened back then. That kind of thing doesn't go on now. There's no demonization now. I don't really believe that that exists. That is also foolish and dangerous. In fact, the it's not serious school usually ends up like this. What about the RUSs? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just curious. This is just, this is just for me. I'm just curious. How many of us here come from a background that tends toward the it isn't serious school of thought? That, that, that's kind of what you've come from or come through. Raise your hand if you've experienced that. That's cool. Okay. How many have, um, have had some engagement or, or, or time with the we can control school? You've had time with that? Okay. Yeah, pretty even. The, the, problem is, the problem is that both of them are off base. This is base. And, and, and they are each off base. They're going to get picked off, to use a baseball term. The antidote is getting back into the mindset of the base, the biblical worldview. Michael Heiser nails it. I don't agree with Michael on everything, but he, he does really good work here. Look what he writes in his book, The Unseen Realm. Modern Christianity's view of the unseen world isn't framed by the ancient worldview of the biblical writers. One segment wrongly consigns the invisible realm to the periphery of theological discussion. The other is so busy seeking some interaction with it, it has become unconcerned with biblical moorings, resulting in caricature. Close quote. I was trying to think of some way, I was going through all this, trying to think of some way to teach this passage that might 
that might shepherd our hearts past each of those extremes. And I was struggling with this. I had a lot of different ideas. Like how, can, how can we get to this? And my friend Louis Marcos, who teaches at Houston Baptist University, brilliant man, Louis wrote me and he said, Wayne, it's easy. Use Tolkien. He said they've all seen or almost all have seen the Lord of the Rings movies and they can get back to the scriptural mindset from which Tolkien wrote through the doorway of his fantasy. I said, okay, explain what you mean. And he shared with me parts of an article he wrote about this and, and here's what he wrote. He said, in Tolkien's telling, in case you don't know the Silmarillion, the whole Tolkien, here, he's going to explain it. In Tolkien's telling, God is called Iluvatar, okay? And Iluvatar doesn't create the world alone, but he commissions the assistance of the Ainur. The Ainur are angelic beings whom he had earlier created. Though Iluvatar alone initiates the song of creation, he allows the Ainur to participate in that song. Everything goes well until Melkor, one of the chief Ainur, rebels against Iluvatar and begins to sing his own harsh, discordant tune. Rather than eliminate the cacophony of Melkor's countermelody, Iluvatar weaves it into a song of greater beauty. Once the song is complete, Iluvatar embodies it as Arda, that's the planet Earth in, in Tolkien's world, and then he allows the Ainur and the elves and men whom Iluvatar will create to dwell on it to descend and rule over the earth as his viceroys. Golly, where do you think Tolkien came up with this stuff? This is just amazing. I can't imagine what inspired. The anyway, he goes on. The Ainur who choose to do so become the Valar. If you've read Lord of the Rings, those are the, you run into that word, the Valar. And they themselves are served by lesser angelic beings called Maiar, again, arranged in ranks. Sadly, Melkor descends to Arda as well and sets himself up in opposition to the plans of Iluvatar and the good Valar. As part of that opposition, he corrupts several of the Maiar, including Sauron. Can I hear some boos and hisses, please? Yeah to his cause. He perverts others into the form of fire demons, those are called Balrogs, giant spiders. Later, he perverts elves and ints into orcs and trolls. What readers know as the Lord of the Rings, when you've seen those movies, read the books, that marks the final stage in a protracted conflict that includes wars between angelic beings, the breaking and remaking of the world, a universal flood, and epic battles in which righteous elves and men fight bravely and sacrificially against wicked elves and men empowered by Melkor and the fallen Maiar. He closes with this. Just as most fans of The Lord of the Rings enjoy the story without being aware of that cosmic backstory of faithful and fallen angelic hierarchies, so most Christians read the Bible and believe the Bible while being unaware of its great cosmic backstory. Close quote. Thanks to Daniel 10, you and I now see more, we're more aware of that backstory. In our last section of text, we're going to see how Daniel is actually touched by an angel, literally, twice more. Uh, go to verse 15. Verse 15. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and was speechless. Suddenly, one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me. I'm powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now, I have no strength. There is no breath. Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened. I said, let my Lord speak, for you, you have strengthened me. Daniel is strengthened. Daniel's evidently emotional or terrified or both. While the angel speaks, he bows to the ground. Most importantly, he's speechless. Look at the word he uses. Uh, speechless in the Hebrew is alam. It's a really, really old word. Alam began uh, as a word in agriculture for, for the binding up of sheaves. So, so the, 
the, the harvester goes by with the scythe and, and cuts the grain, right? It falls on the ground. Then the people coming behind that, safely behind the side, they come along and they take the pieces and they arrange them up and you take a piece of straw, this is still done in parts of the world today, and you tie it around the sheaf and tie it off. That was, that was alam, that was tying it off. It wasn't very long in history before we begin to see alam being used for the human tongue. And it makes sense. When a shock goes through the human, when you have a shock go through you, what, what happens? You, you can't, you're, it's tied up. In fact, we brought the exact same idea into English. What do we say? We say, I was what? Tongue-tied, right? You're tongue-tied. It's the alarm. Daniel is, is speechless at all before God's messenger. Look, look what he calls him. He calls him Adon. Now, that, that has a wide range of meaning. Adon can mean anything from a very respectful sir to, to Lord God. Now, in this case, he's respectfully saying, sir. Sir, very heavy respect, sir, I, I have no strength. I can't work with you because I, I'm both unworthy and unable. It's instructive, I think, to compare that with Isaiah's very similar experience. Years before, Isaiah, the prophet, was, was transported in a vision to God's throne, seeing the holy might of Yahweh. Look, look what Isaiah blurted out. Then I, Isaiah 6, then I said, woe is me for I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Now, at that point, a seraph, which is a different kind of angelic being that does have wings, also has lots of eyes. Very unsettling. Anyway, this seraph uh, jumps in. Look at the next verse. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, your sin is atoned for. God puts Isaiah's sin on that great credit card that Jesus is going to pay off at the cross. You know what that does? That imputes righteousness to Isaiah and allows him, get this, it allows him to both hear God's words and speak. Alam is undone because he can now hear and speak. Look, look, look what happens next, verse 8. Uh, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here my send me. And he replied, go, say to these people, and it goes on from there. Back to Daniel. It's only when another angel, the one that's in more human form, touches his lips that he's given the strength to be able to really hear and really speak. The angel has to touch him a second time for Daniel to really get his strength. And then, like something out of the book of Joshua, the angel commands Daniel to be strong. And he is. He is. He responds. And it's a good thing. Because Daniel, after he strengthened, he's shown more spiritual warfare. Look, verse 20, our last verses. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. When I leave, the prince of Greece will come. Oh, boy. That's exciting. Um, however, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. And here's a parenthetical comment that goes through verse 1 of chapter 11. No one has the courage to support me against these princes except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. And we'll stop there. This is very intriguing. This speech by the angel reveals five significant truths. At least to me, five things jump out. First, angels and demons seem to be continually warring. This angel, by the way, many think that this is the same Gabriel who came to Daniel in chapter 9. This angel has to keep up the fight against this demon called Persia. That battle is two years old in space-time catching. Two years old at this point. It's going to continue for 250 more years. 
Think about that. That means all the time of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, all the things that happened in that time, the horrible pogroms against the Jews, the, the attempts to exterminate every single Jew on the planet, the, the battling against the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, all that is going on battled angelically as well as on earth. Stephen Miller puts it this way. Um, he says, in this passage, humanity is afforded a glimpse of the behind-the-scenes activity that took place in the Persian government. Unknown to the Persian monarchs, angelic forces played a part in their decisions. Second thing we learn is that angels help one another. This is so cool. The first year of Darius the Mede. Oh, man. That's the very year that, that the Persian Cyrus, Darius's boss, he issued the famous decree that allowed the Jews to cross over this bridge. They crossed this bridge right here across the Tigris as they headed back home to Jerusalem. And that fulfilled exactly what God had prophesied that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. Isn't it incredible to see how part of God, part of how God orchestrated that? Look, what he, he used Michael, the main angel over Israel, and this angel helped, and they, and they turned the tide. Now Michael's leading the fight against the Persian demons, so these angels can talk to, to Daniel. Third thing that jumped out at me. Angels can't look into Scripture. We know that. It's things they long to see. But they do have access to something called the Book of Truth. What is that? The great German scholar Karl Friedrich Keil probably was correct. Well over a century ago, here's what he said about the Book of Truth. He said, this Book of Truth is the book in which God has designated beforehand, according to truth, the history of the world as it shall certainly be unfolded. That's why we see God's angels strengthening a raw pagan like Darius. This guy's not a believer in Yahweh, and he is being strengthened. God is in control. He is working in ways we cannot see, no matter the ruler. Understood? Now, probably most gripping to Daniel, the fourth thing, as this curtain was pulled back, I think probably most gripping to him comes in verse 20. He's informed that another great demon, the prince of Greece, is coming next. Oh, boy. More on that next time. But that, that must have been terrifying to learn. This, you know what this news, this could have sent Daniel right back into the catatonic state, but it didn't. You know what we're going to see? When we, when we finish Daniel, we get to the end of chapter 12, we're going to see as the, as the angel continues for the next two chapters that, that Daniel is engaged, understanding all this, the angelic touch, opening his eyes, it, it engages him. He is revived throughout the rest of this book. Daniel is praying, he is battling, he is asking questions, he's engaged. We should be as well. Final thing. Midst of this revelation on spiritual war, Daniel learns again how much he is treasured by God. You know, this is the third time that he's been directly reminded how much the Lord values him. I trust you realize the same is true for all of us Christians, right? God goes out of his way to impress upon us his covenant love. Look, here's how the Apostle Paul said it to the churches in Rome and through them to all of us. You read the underlying text, Romans chapter 1. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Okay, that was absurd. Not the text. That's brilliant. You. That was terrible. Okay, I gave you plenty of warning. That was awful. You, this is the coolest stuff in the... It could not be more exciting. You are loved by God. If you, saints, hagios, the Greek... That means you are, you are like, like Isaiah. You imputed holiness, righteousness to you, and you read it like you were trying out for the part of Droopy. Loved by God. Hello, all you happy people. Right? Shall we try it again? All right. Romans 1, 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Look at this one. Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. 
Daniel got three. I'll give, I'll give you three reminders. Psalm 83. They, talking about God's enemies, devise clever schemes against your people. Look at the parallelism here. They conspire against your treasured ones. Do you realize what that's saying? You, you and I, if we, if we are rightly related to God by His grace through faith in Jesus, through the Messiah, we're treasured. We are, I got chills. We are God's people just like Daniel. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. So, beloved of God, what's our response to all this? Scripture gives some pointed and powerful instruction. I, I think it may be best summarized in the lives of three people. Okay, it, Three things I would suggest. First, we must heed Paul's command to armor up. Look at his stirring instruction, Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His, va- his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and, and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now, we don't have time today to look at every aspect of this. You can study it on your own. Let me... Let me just give one example to get us started, okay? Paul says we should be girded with truth. Now, obviously, he's not describing a physical belt, but then what, what does he mean? He means that we should refuse to let lies in, and the lies that begin inside, we should drive out. We study, we know, we recognize, we memorize truth. We shield ourselves with truth instead of self-protective lies or partisan half-truths which surround us these days. We, let me put it this way. We truly care for people because God loves them and we speak truth in that love. In, in a phrase that has been popularized in our day by Kim Scott, we practice radical candor with ourselves and with others. That takes great effort, but it is a necessity for spiritual growth. Martin Luther recognize the context of the spiritual warfare. He said, this is brilliant. Here's what Luther wrote in his notes on Ephesians. He said, here's a scenario that, that illustrates Paul's command to belt oneself in truth. Luther wrote this, when, not if, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell. Tell him this, I admit, I deserve death and hell. What of it? I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Close quote. That's truth. And, and that's merely one part of a life that is armored up. Put it all on. Don't go into your daily battle, and every day is a battle, without suiting up. Second, we should follow Elijah's example. Elijah battled darkness, maybe more than anyone ever has. You know what he did? Physically, Elijah spoke truth. He argued with brilliant apologetics. He made the case for Yahweh, and, and, and he, this is something Elijah did brilliantly. He exposed the lunacy of idolatry, something we should do more. He prayed. He prayed with fervency and, and with faith according to the clear revelation of the sovereign God. And when he was exhausted, and Elijah got exhausted, he listened to God's message. He let God strengthen him, and he did as the Lord commanded. And, and, and that's, that's my great concern for us. 
You know, we are basically soft people. We are. We have an inbuilt, in these days, predilection toward appeasement. Anybody's unhappy, anybody's whining, oh my goodness, we need to give them what they want. We, you know why we do it? It's not because we care about them, it's because we want to continue in comfort. When we get tired, you know what we do today? We quit. We quit on relationships, jobs, commitments. We, we are quitters. Again, Dr. Heiser really pierces the darkness of our bad strategy. Look what he writes in The Unseen Realm. Though modern Westerners prefer neutrality to war, we must understand that some wars and some enemies don't offer that option. When an enemy wants nothing but your defeat and annihilation, neutrality means choosing death. The war raging in the unseen world for the soul of human imagers of Yahweh is that kind of war. Neutrality is not on the table, close quote. Now, I need to stop and applaud you for a moment. Some of you do this really well. You do. With, with winsomeness and kindness, you speak truth. With strength, like Elijah, you speak truth. You, you, I watch you people. You're always learning, looking for ways to learn so that you can better share God's love, so you can relate to people and share the good news. You pray. You pray against evil. You follow God's word. You don't quit. When you are tired, you rest in the Lord instead of checking out. And I, I just want to say, well done. Well done. Frankly, there are some of us who do not battle like that, at least not much of the time. It's time that changed. It's time that all the rest of us started doing the Elijah-type things. We started doing these things. This is what it means to battle with winsomeness and kindness and strength. We speak truth. We are always looking for ways to learn so we can better share God's love. We pray against evil. We follow God's word only. And when we're tired, we rest in the Lord instead of Quitting. All God's people said, Amen. Now, the person who best followed Elijah was his servant Elisha. And we also need to learn from Elisha's activity. You know what Elisha did? Many, many things. But this is the summation of Elisha to me. He spread encouragement. Just a very encouraging character. Here's, here's one little scene that I think summarizes Elisha's life really well. Uh, the king of Syria hated Elisha. And, and he sent an army to go take him out. And at night, they arrived, uh, Elisha was staying in a little town called Dothan, and, uh, and at night, the, um, the army of the Syrian king surrounded the town. Next morning, Gehazi, who's Elisha's servant, he wakes up, and, uh, and he, he, uh, so here they are, he wakes up, and this is what he sees outside, 1 Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, oh my master, what are we to do? And I probably didn't have enough emotion there to summarize him. Elisha said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha, here's what strikes me. Elisha didn't use, he was blessed, as you and I have been today, to see a little bit about the unseen realm. He didn't use his knowledge of those spiritual realities to frighten. He didn't use it to, to gain power for himself. He chose to encourage his servant. We've got to do the same. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Christians, the Christians who do armor up and who do battle evil, they tend to become haughty and snotty. They, they do. And we should encourage other people instead. Our African-American forebears, they captured this encouragement in a spiritual song they wrote called Angels Watching Over Me. Folks, th 
This is one of the great songs ever written. It's a lullaby that was written by slaves about these very issues we're discussing today. And it's one of my favorite songs, one of the songs I remember learning early in my life. Today, you get to learn it and sing it as well. Why don't you stand with us? Dana is going to lead us in this song. And since Dana sings better than all of us put together, she's going to sing the line, and we do the, the chorus, the angels watching over me chorus. Okay, so we join her on the chorus. Okay, hang on just a second. I, I asked Dana if I could interrupt at this point. I just want you to look at the next verse. Remember, who, who did I tell you made up this song? Who wrote this song? It's a Negro spiritual. It was written by slaves. Think about that, and you, you should be very, very impressed at the beauty and the faith of this last verse. This is a lullaby sung over a child at night. And it says, if you get there before I do, there is a recognition here we're not this isn't Roman slavery that you work your way out of this is modern horrific chattel racial slavery and this parent recognizes that there's no guarantee in this life that you'll see tomorrow and there wasn't and by the way there isn't for us either and we should have the same attitude right and and then look at the faith here tell all my friends I'm coming to I'm a believer in this Jesus angels are watching Yes, there's slavery in this life, but I see the real truth that the, in the real life, everyone in Jesus Christ is free. There is no slave. There's no Gentile. There's no Jew. All are free, all God's people said. Now, with that brilliance in mind, you, you realize what we mean when we're saying angels watch over me. We are, we are engaged with God Almighty. Let's continue to sing together.
Lord, the New Testament tells us that angels observe our gatherings. Thank you for that honor. May we exalt you in their sight by what we think, what we say, what we do. Knowing angels are watching over us, may we live differently. Lord, let that change how we give. We're about to take our offering, and, and, and that's part of how we battle. That's part of how we encourage. And we pray that you will take these offerings and use them for your glory. Amen.